Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. A little girl was talking to a beaver, Mr. Beaver, to be exact. The little girl's name was Lucy. She was in Narnia in a fantasy children's book written by C.S. Lewis, who was an Oxford scholar of the last century and also an important Christian thinker. The girl in the story had just discovered that Aslan, the king of Narnia, is not a man, but he is a lion. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy, to which Mr. Beaver replied, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. We could say that same thing about God. Actually, C.S. Lewis was saying that about God in the children's story. Later on, Lewis himself would realize more deeply the meaning of his words. He would marry late in life, and his wife would die painfully of cancer before him. God is not safe. God is good. God is not safe like the lion Aslan. He's not tame, meaning God's not obligated to act in ways that make sense to you. He's not predictable. We would like him to be. He's not that way. He isn't safe, but he is good. God is the sort of being who would allow his servant Job to be ruined. And then he is the sort of God who, after Job complained, would terrify him from the midst of a whirlwind with booming voice and put him in his place. It's not a safe God. But he's also the kind of God who just afterward would double everything Job had and bless him and let him live out the rest of his days in peace. He is not safe. He is good. We might wish that God were safe, but the interesting thing is, if God were safe in the way that we wished, doing only the things that you would do if you were God, then God would not be good. It is a part of the goodness of God, a part of His majesty, that He doesn't fit into the boxes that we would make for Him. That is part of what draws our heart to Him. It's His otherness. The Bible has a word for this. It calls it holiness. The holiness of God, among other things, or maybe most essentially, is the fact that He's other, meaning He's other than what you would think He is. He's other than what you assume He would be. He does other things than what you think He would do. You thought, he says in the Psalms, that I was one like yourself. God's not like that. This holy God. He is, in fact, so much better than you wish he was. He's so much better. He's so much more good than if he were safe and fit neat and tidy into your theology and what you want him to be. There is this immeasurable gap between you and God, in being. He is so significantly other, so much higher, so transcendent, so glorious and great in contrast to us. 
See, you are a creature. This means that you are always craving, you are always desiring, your soul is always thirsting. God's not like that. He's other than that. He is perfectly satisfied within himself as a triune God, and therefore, he is the only one who can satisfy you. But you see, that does put you in a bit of a dilemma, because he is the one you were created for, him alone. And you cannot be satisfied elsewhere, like Jesus told the woman at the well. There is a water you can drink that will satisfy your soul forever. And she said, give me this drink. Yes, but to get it, you have to go to a lion. To get it, you have to approach a God who is not safe, who is not always predictable to you. But you see, when you get to him, you find he's good. He's the ultimate good. He is the good you have always been looking for. That is really the lesson of our text today, or maybe the lessons joined together in our text today. We've seen here in Samuel most recently that the Philistines won a great battle against the Israelites, and part of their victory was that they stole the Ark of the Covenant, this gold-covered box that represented God's presence. And they took that box to their own land of Philistia down by the coast, and God followed them and plagued every city where the Ark went terribly. So finally the people decided, this God is too strong for us. He is not safe, and we have to send him back to Israel. They gather together, and they decide they will send him back with a gift of golden images of tumors and of mice, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart with two milk cows, and the milk cows miraculously go up the Valley of Sorek on their way from Ekron in Philistia on their way up to Beth Shemesh, and that's where we find ourselves today. So now as we look at this text, behold, both the goodness and the unsafeness of God. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, it's from the cart, and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, these are the five major cities of Philistia. One for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them or 50,070, we'll talk about. 
And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. If you only know God in an impersonal way, then what we call the problem of evil, God allowing or in some cases causing calamities, terrible things to take place, will be an impersonal problem for you. It'll be a matter of data, of crunching the numbers. But if you know God in a personal way, then you know that when calamity strikes, it's personal. The question is very personal. How could the God whom you know by experience to be so merciful, compassionate, tender, more than anyone else you've ever met in your life, how can he allow or in some cases cause so much suffering on earth? He, of course, has the power to prevent tragedies. You think, as a Christian at some point, that you get to know God well enough that you start to feel like you can predict what He's going to do. You understand what He's doing, especially in your life. You see where your life is headed. You understand something of what He's doing in your life, and it's encouraging. And then something happens in your life that was not predicted, that you were not ready for, something maybe even that you never could have imagined God would allow to happen in your life. And certainly you can't fathom the reasons for why God would allow that to take place. So what do you do? What are you going to do if that happens? Well, for starters, you're going to look at this text. This is something that's taking place in this text right here of Scripture, is this question, first of all, is God good? And when you see the beginning of our text today, it's undeniable. They are amazed at something that God has done in Beth Shemesh by bringing the ark back, and they respond joyfully with sacrifices on that day. It is a wonderful time, something they never could have imagined would happen, but it's a good thing. So is God good? Well, of course he's good. But is God safe? Because not long afterward, they look into the ark and a large number of them die. Is God safe? God is not safe. How do you, in a personal way, interact with, live your life for a God who is good but who is not safe? That is what we're looking at today. And we're going to look at this passage then under those two headings. We're going to reverse what Mr. Beaver said. And first we're going to consider the fact that God is good. And you see it here. But then we're also going to consider the fact just as true that God is not safe. So let's look at this first. God is good. How do we see that in this text? I don't want to make this passage into something that it's not. Preachers can do that. I don't want to do that. 
But as I read this passage and as you look at it, it is almost impossible to avoid the conclusion that there is reflected here something of our own experience as Christians today. So many thousands of years later, under a different covenant, the new covenant, yet there's something of our experience right here. This was written for our instruction. If you've been a Christian long, you see something of this in yourself, this common Christian experience. For example, here in verse 1. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And isn't that just like God? There you are, head down, with your scythe, in the field, doing your normal life stuff. Did the people of Beth Shemesh wake up that day and anticipate that the Ark of the Covenant would be returned to them? No, not one person guessed that. Not one person in that city could have guessed that that is exactly what would happen while they were just doing their normal stuff. This is either May or June. It's the time to harvest wheat. And that day, that was one of the ways you tracked what time it was of year. Harvest. It's agricultural society. So it's the time to harvest the wheat, comes after the barley, we've got to harvest the wheat. There they are, living their life, cutting the wheat, and notice in our text, they lift their eyes, <laughs> and what do you see? It's possible that they had lifted their eyes because first they heard a noise, which was the miracle of these two milk cows who were lowing as they went, we saw, coming up the Soric Valley from Ekron, from the territory of Philistia, that direction to the west. Coming up eastward, the Soric Valley, toward Beth Shemesh, here are the people out in the field. They hear a noise down in the valley. What's, what's this noise? This unnatural lowing of cows. They lift their eyes in our text today and see what they never would have thought they would see that day. Have seen. They see the ark. I don't know how long it takes for them to realize that this is not a mirage, it's not a dream, it's not a vision, this is actually the ark. And it says when they saw it, they rejoiced to see it. <laughs> now they of all people would have rejoiced because we are told elsewhere in the Old Testament that Beth Shemesh was actually a city allotted to the tribe of Levi. And if you know the Levites, you know that they were in charge of the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, specifically the group of Levites in charge of the Ark of the Covenant, were the Kohathites. And wouldn't you know it that Beth Shemesh was specifically a city of Kohathites. So these were a people whose lives were supposed to be devoted to caring for the tabernacle. And of course, the tabernacle was all centered around the Ark, which had been gone for seven long months. What's the purpose of their lives? Their ark is gone. The glory has departed. So certainly they would have wanted the ark to come back, but they had just lost 30,000 men of Israel who were able to fight. They don't have the military strength to go into the heart of Philistia and retrieve the ark. So there's basically nothing they can do to get the ark back as desperately as they would want it. All they have to do to get the ark back in our text is they lifted their eyes and there it was. <laughs> So, of course, they rejoice to see it. That's kind of an understatement in how we read that. Don't imagine they would, when they went out with their scythes that day, find so much joy. And you know, if you've been a believer very long, that this is our experience of God. 
that if you trust in his son, Jesus Christ, you enter into a personal relationship with him. You see this maybe most clearly when you first lay your soul in the hands of Jesus Christ. When your heart is first changed, there is this joy, an intensity of joy. Everybody's different, but often it's the case you are, in a sense, surprised by joy, another book by C.S. Lewis, but you are surprised by the joy that you find And where's the joy coming from? Is it you're suddenly rich? You're suddenly healthy? The joy is really centered on this. You are seeing the almighty God at work consciously in your life. That's a lot of the joy. He redeemed you from your sins. Christ died on the cross, not just in a vague way, but for you, your sins have been forgiven. God is now involved in your life. You're seeing his providence. You go over here. You need a job. You got a job. You know it's from God. You go over here. You're running out of money. Here's a check in the mail. You are seeing. You're surprised. It's like you lift your eyes and you see God working in your life. This is a part of the goodness of God, the clear, open goodness that we experience as Christians. It's part of what draws us to God, that makes it so we can't go. Where else will we go? To have the God of the universe so minutely involved in your life. You know something of that experience. When you lift your eyes, God has done a marvel and you rejoice to see it. And there you were just cutting your wheat, (laughs) just living your life. Of course, After you've been a believer for some time, often that honeymoon kind of fades a little bit. But then there's the steady. At intervals, you see God work in your life. You trust him when you don't, but then you see it, and it rejoices your heart. Of course, they are seeing this surprising goodness of God in bringing the ark back to them. It's like they'd been there in black and white, and suddenly they look up and technicolor. When they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. I think there is something in our Christian experience, part of the joy that's reflected in this text is you realize that when you deal with God, you're now involved in something so much bigger than you. You see, because these Bethshemites, they're just out there cutting wheat. That's what they're doing. They're cutting wheat. A noble job, but it's not going to make it in history books. And there they are just cutting the wheat. And when they lift their eyes... I don't know if they realized it immediately. Maybe they did. That's history-making stuff right there. As the Ark of the Covenant willingly returned in a miraculous way with these cows, so much so that you see later in our text that that rock that was used becomes a historical marker. The end of verse 18, the great stone beside which they set down the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. This is something big. This is something notable. When we are dealing, our souls, dealing with the holy God, that's part of the marvel that we have, is that you're not dealing with something small. Your life may have details that feel so small, but the smallest person whose soul is in active interaction with God is living a big life. It's part of the marvel of dealing with God. He is a God so big That though you have no army to retrieve the ark from Philistia, in seven months' time, he will get the five kings who rule that country to return the ark willingly and gladly. It's the sort of God we're interacting with. Remember the story that's reflected in verses 17 and 18 here with this little aside that's thrown in. 
when it says, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. That aside is a reminder to the Israelites that all Philistia was behind the return of the ark. It wasn't one sect or group within the nation who wanted the ark to come back. It was the entire nation acknowledging Yahweh is too great for us. Because you have there the five golden tumors and the five golden mice that represented the five major cities and the five leaders of those cities. But you see too, the mice are also in reference to the unwalled villages. Probably what's being said here is the fortified cities are those five major cities. But the unwalled villages would be just whichever ones were closest to those cities were counted with that city. Kind of the suburbs here counted with that city. So it's all Philistia, every settlement in that nation. What political campaign could Israel have run in Philistia to get them all behind this action of returning the ark? Could never have been done. But see, they're dealing with this amazing God, this holy God who's different than them. They are weak. He is strong. He gets the enemy nation to return the ark. And all Philistia wants it done. Verse 16 as well. I mean, just think of it. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. You know, these little farmers in their field probably never expected to see one king of the people of Philistia. These were just little farmers doing their little work. And over there on the crest or wherever, looking down into the valley, there are all five kings representing the whole nation with their eyes set on what's happening in this little town, this little life of these little people. You know that something of your experience of God is part of the marvel of it and the wonder. This is a huge earth. It's massive. There are so many people. We live at one time. There have been so many people. There may be, if Christ hasn't returned, so many more people. You realize your life is so small. But if you are in interaction with this God, and the amazing thing is He welcomes that. He wants to be in interaction with you through Jesus Christ, His Son. Then your life cannot be small then you end up looking up and seeing the great things that God is doing and that you are a part of that. The Beth Shemites were not dealing with a local deity. They were dealing with the God of all the nations. Something larger than wheat harvesting is happening in their life. It is the sense of God's greatness. This is part of his otherness, this holy God that causes wonder in our hearts. That he is this way. Part of why we are surprised by joy and in interacting with him. And then, of course, we also see our experience reflected in how they respond to what they've just seen. It's with sacrifices. Look here, verse 14 and 15. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. It's a miracle as well. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, should be easy, there'd be a lot of Levites there, it's a Levite town, took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. As miraculously as those cows lowing went up the Sorek Valley to Beth Shemesh, so miraculously they stopped right next to this rock, as everybody witnesses this. 
The Beth Shemites, I imagine at this point, have set down their scythes. <laughs> Something's going on. Leave those for a second. Have come over to where the rock is and are looking in amazement at this cart that has the Ark of the Covenant upon it. And their response is like our response to God's amazing surprises in our life. It's one of worship. It is the natural response of the human heart when unhindered by sin to behold the marvel of God's hand in this world and to respond with this worship. I don't even know how you would define that, but you've experienced that if you're a Christian. It's this marvel. It's this wonder at the immensity and the majesty and the work of God. It looks like what's happening in this text is that they break up the cart because what are you going to use it for after this, you know? So you break up the cart. Probably they're using that wood on the big rock. So the big rock now has the Ark of the Covenant on it. It has those golden images on it. It doesn't tell us this, but I think we can infer that they all, it's probably a very big rock. They also lay the wood from the cart on the big rock and then kill the two milk cows and sacrifice them in gratitude to God. Because what are you going to do with them now? You're not going to use them as just normal cows. And then it says they even did more sacrifices, more burnt offerings, more sacrifices, probably again all on this big rock in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. Notice we are told specifically that the Levites handled the ark. It might seem redundant. This is a city of Levites, but it's not redundant. The author is making very clear to us that they are handling the ark appropriately. Levites were the only ones who were supposed to handle it. Now, What's not as clear in this text is if it was right of them to sacrifice those cows because in the Old Testament law, it was only a male who was supposed to be sacrificed for a burnt offering. The cows are female. On top of that, the few instances where a female, a cow, was supposed to be used for some specific sacrifice, they were supposed to be a cow that had never had a yoke. These ones obviously have a yoke right now. So I don't know if that was offensive to God or not. I'm not actually entirely certain. May have been, but God doesn't judge them for that clearly in our text. What is clear, though, is that they are responding with worship. Worship to the Lord. Verse 15, it's on that day. All of this is happening on one surprising day. All of the goodness of God poured out in their life. And again, remember that this is after seven months where God's goodness was not clearly seen. A time when it seemed like God was far away and the glory had departed. And then suddenly, a full day surprised by the joy of God. And you have probably known that in your life, if you're in a dark season right now with the Ark of the Covenant, the glory departed seven months away in Philistia, no way to retrieve it. If the way forward seems hopeless, this is part of the goodness of God. He could surprise you today. He could resolve those problems today. He said, that's impossible. You know, the problems I have are so severe. He could do it today. <laughs> you know, retrieving an ark from Philistia, I don't know if you've tried it. It's not easy to do that, but it was easy for God to do that. God is good. He's very good. That's what draws us to him, all his goodness. Now, we've seen that God is good, but of course, Mr. Beaver said more than that. He is good, but he is not safe. And that is immediately what we find in this passage and what follows. Look again at verses 19 and 20. And he struck, the he is God, some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon or into the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, 
Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Now, it is true that the Levites, like everyone else, were not technically supposed to look, as the ESV has it, upon the ark. They were not supposed to look at the ark. The way that happened is the ark was supposed to be kept in the tabernacle behind a very thick curtain in the holiest place. And only once a year, the high priest could see it. Besides that, you just didn't see the ark. When the ark was taken somewhere else, the priests were supposed to cover it first. Then the Kohathite Levites would come in and carry it on poles, but it would be covered. So you're not supposed to even look at the ark. So it's possible, as the ESV translates this, that what happened there in Beth Shemesh is that they uncovered it, looked at it, and died. I say that's possible. I don't know that that's likely. The reason being, Hophni and Phinehas, who had taken the ark into battle, let's say even if they, ungodly and unpious, impious as they were, let's say if they happen to observe that and cover the ark and take it into battle, even if they had done that, once the Philistines had stolen it, it's just so unlikely they would have kept it covered. They brought it into the house of Dagon as a trophy of victory, It doesn't seem like they would have kept it covered, even if it was covered at that point. So probably many people had been looking at the ark. If it's not covered, if it's not hidden, it's out in Philistia, it's brought to Beth Shemesh. It's likely, not certain, but it's likely that many people did look upon it, in which case we wonder why were the Beth Shemites judged? They could not have looked at it if it wasn't covered. If it came, of course they would look at it. That's why many translations instead, like the New American or the New International or the King James, if you have any of those, instead of saying they looked upon the ark, say, which can also be from the Hebrew true, that they looked into the ark. Of course, that's how it happens in Indiana Jones. I wouldn't put too much stock by that. But that's likely what is happening here. Uh, We know that there were three items that were inside the ark of the covenant originally. One was a golden urn that contained some manna. The second was Aaron's rod that had budded a flower. And the third were the two tablets of the testimony, probably they're the Ten Commandments. Now, those first two items were perishable. And what we do find, this is so many hundreds of years after they'd been put in there, is that later, when we get to 2 Samuel, and eventually the ark, 1 Kings actually, and eventually the ark is taken by Solomon to the temple that he constructs, only the two tablets are in there. Aaron's rod is gone, and the manna is gone. So they open it, and the two, they're, they're made of stone. They'll last forever. So the two stones are in there. So probably when the Beth Shemites opened, removed the mercy seat with the cherubim upon it, removed that and looked into the ark, they probably looked in and saw the Ten Commandments. In a sense, rather fitting. These holy commandments were too great for them. This was an irreverence on their part. You know, curiosity killed the cat. Really, curiosity killed the Bethshemites too. They wanted to see what was inside there, but that was an irreverent act. This was too holy of commandments for them. This was too holy of a God, and they die for their irreverence. Now, there is a question about how many Bethshemites died that day, and the ESV says 70. Depending on your translation, you either have the number 70 there or the number 50,070, and there's a large difference between those sums. Now, if you're wondering why that is, that's because in the Hebrew original at this point, it says that 70 men 
died, 70 men, and then immediately afterward it says 50,000. So do you just add them together and get 50,070? That's what some translations do. Do you look at the 50,000 as maybe a, a copyist early on was copying 70 and he put that in there either accidentally or wanted to make it bigger or something? So was that added later? So that's not really part of it. That is possible, though rare. Or on the other hand, you could see it as 70, and depending on how you read it, that could mean five out of every thousand, kind of how we use percents per hundred, five out of every thousand, which would mean Beth Shemesh would have been a city of 14,000. Five out of every thousand would be 70 people. See that? Or it could also mean one-fifth of a clan, okay? And that means a clan of 350. Maybe that was the clan here, 350. One-fifth of that, you do the math, and it's 70. We don't know, and to be honest with you, even for myself, I'm not sure which of those options is correct, 70 or 50,070. I tend to think 70 because there almost certainly were not 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh at that time. It's a very large number, larger than the amount of people who died in the army in the battle. On the other hand, the text does say specifically they mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. 50,000 would certainly be a great blow. So I'm not going to be able to settle that for you. I personally think it was 70, but it could be 50,070. Either way, it's a lot of people died. Even if it's 70, they died in that city. Now, we just witnessed the Philistines die by plague for their presumption in taking the ark. And God hounded them everywhere the ark went and killed. But see, those were Philistines. Those were the bad guys. Those were the uncircumcised. Those were the worshipers of false gods. Those were not God's people. So that was God fighting his enemies. Of course, that makes sense to the Jews, to us. The problem is now the ark is back home in friendly territory. And God has not stopped killing now he strikes down at least 70 men of Israel. These are Israelites. These are God's chosen people. These are even Kohathites. These are specifically people in charge of the ark there. So the Beth Shemites realize this God is not safe. And they're right. He is not safe. What this means for you is you may grow up going to church and maybe live in a Christian family, at least in a Christian-like country, and it's easy for us to make assumptions that because we're in the context we're in, if God's going to be friendly toward anyone, he's going to be friendly toward us. And that may be your approach to final judgment and the life to come is that you've lived a pretty decent life and you're in a great community and you've got believers all around you and granddaddy and daddy, they were preachers. And here you are. And so it seems like God will let you in. It also seemed like the Beth Shemites would not die when they approached the ark. But God is not partial presumption by him is dealt with appropriately. He is not a safe God. You can't make assumptions with God. Don't die with assumptions about how you're going to get into heaven. Don't do that. God is not a safe God. That will not turn out the way that you think that will turn out. So here is God, a dangerous God. So in our text, the Beth Shemites then summon the men of Kiriath-Jerim. This is a town now about 50 miles north-northeast or east-northeast of where they are. So this is going further into the Judean mountains. I guess it's that way for you. Further into the Judean mountains, away from Philistia, and maybe that's why they're sending it there. We don't know why. 
Maybe they're sending it, get it far away from this border town, far away from the Philistines. So they tell Kiriath Jerem to come. Of course, Kiriath Jerem are willing to do that. The questions that are asked in verse 20 actually remind us of what just happened in Philistia. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go away from us? That sounds a lot like the Philistines when they were trying to get rid of the ark because they realized it's not safe. So the men of Kirith-Jerim, they do go get the ark. They bring it, we see here, beginning of chapter 7, to the house of Abinadab. We know nothing else about him, almost nothing else about him. They consecrate his son Eleazar. We know almost nothing else about him, except that Eleazar was the name of one of Aaron, the priest, one of his sons. So these are probably priestly names. So these are probably priests, or at least Levites, based on just their names. So it's there in Abinadab's house with Eleazar looking after it. Here is the one other thing we know about Abinadab, though, that is worth noting. The ark is too dangerous for Philistia. People die. The ark is too dangerous even for Beth Shemesh, and people die. And when the ark comes to Abinadab's house, someone dies. A long time later, when David decides finally to bring this ark from Abinadab's house into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Abinadab has two of his sons, besides Eleazar, lead the cart with the ark on it. The name of one son is Ahio. And the name of the other son is Uzzah. Uzzah is Abinadab's son. And if you know the story of Uzzah that will come long afterward, it's that Uzzah, they were carrying it on a cart, which they shouldn't have done in the first place. The ark was about to fall off the cart, and Uzzah reached out his hand. And when he did so to touch the ark and catch it, God struck him dead. And if that seems extreme to you, know that it seemed extreme to King David too. David, we're told, was angry that that happened. And it says he was afraid of the Lord when Uzzah died. David said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Who can stand before this holy God who is not safe? People die. Now, of course, we are in the New Testament. And you're thinking, we're after the cross and things are different. Now, that is true. But let me also point out to you that after the cross, God struck down Ananias and Sapphira in the early Christian community for lying to God through the apostles. Let me also remind you that some of the Corinthian believers after the cross in the New Testament were sick and died at the hand of God for doing communion poorly. That's why they died. They died. God killed them. New Testament Christians Peter wrote in the New Testament, quote, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Our God is a consuming fire. He is not safe. God is not safe. This should produce in us a reverence toward God. The kind of reverence that someone who has handled, let's say, firearms, if you've handled firearms very much, you handle them with reverence. If you don't know anything about firearms, maybe you handle it in a foolish way. But if you know their power, you handle them carefully, as I've heard someone say before. So it is with God. God is not the sort of person who makes a great character in the jokes that we tell. He's not the sort of person who probably takes well to 
being referred to as the big man upstairs in a light or cavalier way. God is someone we deal with in a serious way. It's what Hebrews 12, 28, and 29 explain to us. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The point of what we find here is that there is a cost to nearness to God. So you can live your life and never try to get near to this dangerous God and say, he's not safe. I can't predict what he's going to do. Scares me. I'm, I'm going to live my life over here away from him. You'll pay a cost later. But for those of us who have seen the beauty of God, who have been surprised by joy, who have seen the wonder, who have marveled, who have hearts attuned to worship, where else can we go? Yeah, he is dangerous. He is not safe. He will not do the things in your life you think he will do. He will do other things, and they will be hard. In fact, Scripture tells us that if you become part of the household of God, judgment starts there, and God as a consuming fire. He doesn't consume you. That's the good news. But it's still this consuming fire that consumes everything that keeps you from being closer to God. So you draw close to God, And fire comes out and painfully consumes the things that are keeping you from being even closer to God. It's a bit scary. It's like you're being tethered by these ropes, trying to get closer to God. Every one of us wants to be closer to God. Don't we want that nearness to Him? But it's like these ropes of our flesh and our sin, and they hold us back, and God knows how to break the ropes. He's going to heat the ropes till they become brittle and snap. But as he heats each individual rope to get it hot enough, it begins to sear into your flesh. And it's painful. You say, what are you doing, God? And then it snaps. And you're that much closer to God. And then this one snaps. And you're that much closer to God. That's not a safe procedure. That's not taking into account your kind, delicate self. That can be very painful. But it's good. If you want to be close to God, there is a cost to nearness to God. Everywhere that the ark went, which represented God's presence, there was a cost. In Philistia, in Beth Shemesh, even in Abinadab's house, he is a consuming fire. Who can stand before him? That's the question. Who is able to stand before him? Now, as we draw to an end here, having said all of that, and I don't want to negate any of it, there are some tender consciences here. What are we going to do for you? who hear this and already you feel loaded with guilt and think that you can never approach God, you are so sinful. And to hear this hard, heavy stuff about God striking down 70 or 50,070, you say, that confirms my suspicions that God wants nothing to do with me. I'm going to stay over here because that is scary. Don't do that. That's wrong. (laughs) This question... Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, is answered by the cross of Jesus Christ. And don't think about these things without the cross being involved. Have you run to the cross for refuge? You know what the cross was? The cross is what stands between you and a holy God in his wrath. The cross is there and it absorbs the full power of God's wrath completely. It is finished, gone and you receive the righteousness of Christ, that's why you're treated as a beloved child even when you sin. You are treated as a beloved child. 
So if you think of God as unsafe, which he is, as a consuming fire, which he is, if you have a tender conscience, please keep in mind there's a difference between a consuming fire consuming you, that's what God is to his enemies, and a consuming fire consuming all the things in your life that shouldn't be there. That's what God is for you. It hurts. It's consuming. It's in love to get you closer and closer to himself. The reason God can make that distinction, why not consume you but just all the things around you? You're the sinner because of Christ. He already consumed Christ. Full burnt offering. Destroyed. You will not be destroyed. You may be saved as through fire, but see, you are saved in Christ. That being said, he's still a consuming fire. He is not safe. We shouldn't treat him as safe. But that's part of the marvel. That's part of the wonder. That's the excitement of the Christian life. Do you want to tame God as your God who just does what everyone expects that he would do? That's very boring. You have instead a true and a living God. The God who smashes his enemies in Philistia. Who disciplines and punishes those among his own people who are rude and do not receive him well. He's the God who's given his son so that you will not be destroyed, but he is a consuming fire who will burn away your dross. The reason I have to end on this note is because for the tender conscience who hears this message, thinks God's not safe and won't draw near, that contradicts what God tells you in Hebrews, quote, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's Christ. Who can stand before this holy God? Only Jesus, really. But because of him, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to the mercy seat, with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is so good that your soul will never be satisfied apart from conscious interaction with him. And he is so dangerous that it cannot be predicted exactly what will happen when you draw near to him for that interaction. But let us approach him boldly and reverently and offer the sacrifice of worship. Mm -hmm.